Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. It's been our practice that about every year or so we read the law, the, the Ten Commandments which God delivered to Moses for his chosen people. The law of God in corporate worship has several functions. It exposes our sin, showing us our need for a Savior. It shows us what is just and unjust in God's rule in his world. And it teaches us how to live in the kingdom of God. So this morning I'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, that you should learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord your God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive. The Lord spoke with you face to face on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in the, in the heaven above, or that's in, on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there in a mighty hand, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that, may, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all the assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the dark, in the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me 
all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man is still alive. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all the flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go, go near and hear all that the Lord will say, the Lord our God will say, and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to him, to you, that we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of his people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had a heart, had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you, stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving to them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land that you possess. The law of God reminds us what we need to confess our sins. Brothers, sisters, we are in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning, where Paul is addressing the church of Ephesus and also the churches in the general vicinity of the city of Ephesus. When you look at Ephesians overall, it is very much a book that is about the church. Paul gives us lots of instruction as to what it means to be the body of Christ, and that's what this sermon is about really today how to be the body of Christ and the necessity of the being the body of Christ and being a part of the church, that we can't even really begin to comprehend the love of Christ and the grace of God that we, re- we have received through Christ unless we are part of his body, unless we are part of his church. So please listen carefully to what Paul has to say to us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. 
Now, as we look at Paul's statement here in verse 14, it's rather apparent he's wrapping up a thought. He has more thoughts to convey in the rest of Ephesians, but he's concluding something here. And so when we look back at everything that precedes this passage, we recognize that Paul has been laying a doctrinal foundation for the statements that he makes here. The heart of his message is this. The fatherly love of God in Christ expressed through the working of His grace. That's what we see in everything that precedes this passage in Ephesians. That's what Paul wants to make so clear to us. That God is our Father and that He has demonstrated His love for us, His grace toward us, by giving us the Son. And by considering everything that Christ has accomplished for us, then we begin to get an idea of what the love of God is like and of what the grace of God has accomplished on our behalf. So chapters 1 through 3 are very doctrinal in nature. That's Paul's practice. And then chapters 4 through 6, Paul concludes with practical instructions. How to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says that in chapter 4, verse 1. So the first portion of Ephesians is concerned with doctrine. The second portion is concerned with showing us how to live that doctrine out practically in everyday life. Now, before Paul goes on to give that instruction, before he goes on to say, brothers, sisters, this is how to walk in a worthy manner. This is how you need to live as disciples of Jesus. He prays for them. And what does he pray? This is an important thing for us to consider. What is Paul's prayer for them? Because when we examine his prayer, that gives us a a good idea of what it requires to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Does Paul pray for the Ephesian believers to be strong in their own righteousness? To be well behaved? No. Was that his expectation? Yes. Of course, they needed to live obedient lives But what was the key thing that they needed to grasp if they were to walk in holiness, if they were to walk in obedience to Christ? Well, we see here in these verses, Paul's prayer for them was that God would help them to comprehend the love of Christ, which is necessary to walking in a worthy manner. So Paul's point here, what we learn What was true for the Ephesians is also true for us. In order for us to live a worthy Christian life that actually reflects the teachings of Christ, we must comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. If you don't comprehend the love of Christ, then you will not be able to live as a faithful Christian. Please understand that. Comprehending the love of Christ is essential, necessary, to living a life of faith and living a life of obedience. So Paul says, for this reason, he bows his knees before the Father. For what reason? What was the reason that motivated him to bow his knees? Well, his reason was everything he had just affirmed regarding the grace of God and the work of Christ and everything that precedes this passage, this prayer in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, 2, in the first part of chapter 3. And notice Paul begins to revisit some of those themes he's already touched upon so dramatically in the first chapters of Ephesians. He emphasizes again here the fatherly love and generosity of God. He calls God his Father. He bows his knees before 
the Father. That he tells us in verse 15, from whom the whole family derives its name. And that emphasizes God's fatherly care. God is not a detached, deadbeat father who is disconnected from the lives of his people. God is an attentive father who pays meticulous attention to the details of his children's lives. That's the kind of father that God is. He's the kind of father who lavishes his grace upon his children. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 1. He lavished His grace upon us in Christ. And the lavishing did not stop with the birth, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He continues to lavish His grace upon us from day to day. He's lavishing His grace upon all of us right now, in this very moment. Because here we are, well-fed, clothed, with homes to live in, hearing His Word declared to us, and we just baptized a baby. That's lavished grace, isn't it? And here we are receiving it. So that's Paul's point. He wants us to understand God is a good father. He's the best father. He's the ultimate father. And that's why we go to him and we pray and we ask. Because if we ask in faith, then we shall receive. And who do we ask? We ask our father. Our heavenly father has our complete and unquestioning trust. Because we know he is good and he cannot lie. He's also generous. Notice that in verse 16. Paul asked God that according to what? According to the riches of his glory. Is that presumptuous of Paul? He's asking God the Father to share the riches of his glory with the believers to whom he was writing. He's saying, Father, please share these riches with your people. Was that presumptuous of Paul? Not at all. Why not? Because Paul understood the heart of God. Paul understood that God is a generous Father who withholds nothing from his children, but shares what he has with his children. Remember what our Lord Jesus said to the Jews. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more so your Father who is righteous and in heaven. So if we, dads, sitting here, I'm evil, I know that, I'm depraved, that's why I need the Lord Jesus Christ, yet I do know how to bless my children, right? And most of the dads sitting here, hopefully all of us, we all know how to bless our children, And if we can figure that out, then can God the Father, who is untainted by sin, who is perfect in every way, does He not know how to bless His children? Is His heart not full of generosity toward His children, even to a greater degree than my wicked heart is? Absolutely. And so Paul is telling us here, we're beginning, beginning to get an idea of what it means to comprehend the love of Christ. It has to begin with understanding who God is as Father, loving Gracious, generous, attentive. That's the kind of father we have in our Heavenly Father. Now, in light of that, something that we absolutely must remember here, because this is also one of Paul's implied concerns in these verses, is this. We have to remember this. That knowledge of God's love, what we could define as doctrine. Doctrine is very important. We need doctrine. Do you know why? Doctrine prevents us, sound doctrine based in Scripture prevents us from trying to remake God according to our own perspective. That's what doctrine does. It's a protection for us so we don't try to reinvent God, right? Doctrine is a fence and it keeps our hearts, our faith, our minds in line with the Word of God. So we worship God as He truly is rather than trying to reinvent Him, which we always want to do. 
Don't we? We do. We want to remake God so that he is more accommodating of our sin, right? And so on and so forth. So doctrine's important. It's vitally important. But our love for God, our knowledge of God, our comprehension of his love for us must go beyond doctrine. It must go beyond mere head knowledge. It also must permeate our inner being or our soul, as we read in Romans 7.22. Our soul is the very core of our identity. So something I want us to bear in mind this morning is that sound biblical doctrine is not intended to remain as an abstraction that we keep contained up in our head, right? Mere abstractions. We just read the Apostles' Creed, and we believe that, we affirm that. I'm sure that the elders here, they have on their bookshelves at home systematic theologies and confessions and creeds. That's all doctrine and good and necessary. And it's all, we all learn it through our minds. But doctrine cannot remain in our heads. It cannot remain abstract thought. The intention, the purpose, the God-given purpose of doctrine is to transform our hearts and to make us into the likeness of Christ. That's the point of doctrine. Not just so that we're right, not just so that we understand the truth, but so that we will be transformed by our knowledge of the truth. That's what doctrine is supposed to do to us, change us, make us more like Christ. Now I know that here at Christ Church, that you embrace sound doctrine with all of your hearts. You're very concerned, as much as my congregation is, with honoring God through what we confess, through our theology. But I want to ask you something. All the sound doctrine you have here, which is wonderful in the gift of God, is it changing you? Is it transforming you? How is it working down into your bones and into your gut? How is it transforming your relationships How is it transforming your relationships here within the church? Is it doing anything in your life? Is it changing you? Is it sanctifying you? Is it making you into the likeness of Christ and being translated from abstract head knowledge and into love for your brothers and sisters? Because that's what it's supposed to be doing. All that wonderful sound doctrine is supposed to be translated into love into faithfulness, into obedience. And if that's not the effect it's having upon you, then God doesn't care about our sound doctrine. It's just a formality. If it's not changing us, if it's not leading to faith and love and obedience in our lives, then God has no use for it. And he doesn't care. How about how right we are doctrinally? What he wants to see is the truth of his word leading to love and obedience. Is it changing you? Is that what the sound doctrine that is taught here at Christ Church, is it changing you in that way? Making you like Christ and filling you with love for his people. Now how can we ensure that sound doctrine not only remains in our minds, but also permeates our hearts, the inner man? How do we do that? Well, Paul shows us here, thankfully. The way that doctrine permeates our hearts is through humble dependency upon the Spirit of God. Humble dependency upon the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit strengthens our hearts to believe and to respond to the truth of Scripture. 
We know, right, we're good Reformed Calvinists. We understand, apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot believe. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot make any sense of the teaching of Scripture. We cannot understand it. And apart from the Holy Spirit, doctrine cannot make that transition from our mind into our hearts. We need His help. And we have to demonstrate that dependency upon the Spirit, asking for His help. So, the answer to having your doctrine permeate your heart is to cultivate your dependency upon the Spirit of God. How do you do that? Well, through prayer. What does Paul do? He prays. That's how you demonstrate dependency upon the Spirit of God, through prayer. You ask God, strengthen my soul by your Holy Spirit's power. Permeate my heart with your word. You have to have a life of prayer, a life of practice dependency upon the power of the Spirit. Apart from that that dependency, your faith will wither. So we have to depend upon the power of the Spirit as much as Paul is here, going to God and asking for his help, asking him to strengthen us. Then in verse 17, Paul, the, one of Paul's aims, he tells us, is having Christ dwell in our hearts through faith so that we may be rooted and grounded in love. Interesting statement. We should take our time thinking about what he's saying to us. What does the Spirit produce in us when he is at work in our hearts? What does, what's the result of the Holy Spirit being at work in the heart of a sinner? Well, the answer is faith. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in us. He produces faith. We learn the truth of Scripture and we believe it. We learn it and we believe it. And it's through faith that Christ dwells in our hearts. This looks back to our Lord's statement in John 14, verse 23. Paul is not referring to conversion here. He's he's writing to Christians that he is assuming are converted, are already born again. He is referring to ongoing faith and obedience to Christ in the Christian's life. That's what he's referring to here. An ongoing obedience, an ongoing faith. And it's that ongoing obedience and faith that makes us rooted and grounded in love so that we may grasp the vast dimensions of Christ's love together with all the saints. Now it's interesting that Paul uses two analogies in regard to our personal holiness. Do you see what analogies he uses? Well, he uses, first of all, the word rooted. Rooted is a botanical analogy and reminds us of a healthy tree that grows and produces fruit. We're in Michigan. We're familiar with good trees and bad trees. We know the difference between them, especially when it comes to apple trees. At least when I was growing up in northern Michigan, we're surrounded by orchards everywhere, and you could tell a good tree from a bad tree. Look for the apples. If there are good apples, that's a good tree. It's well-rooted. If there are no apples or they're diseased, you might want to question how how the uh, roots of that tree are doing. So that's a botanical analogy example Paul is using. We should be rooted. And then he also says that we should be grounded. And that's a construction reference. He's talking about a building, a building that is well made and has a firm foundation. And what, why do we give our buildings firm foundations? Why do we want to ensure that they are well grounded? Well, so that they will endure, so that they can last and against all of the, the weather and every other sorts of stress they're going to be put under, we want them to be well-grounded. 
So when we consider that Paul says that we are to be rooted and grounded, we understand that this really is an apt description of what our love for Christ and the church ought to be like. Our love for Christ and for the church ought to be ever-growing and producing good fruit. It ought to be well-rooted, so it is fruitful and prospering. And our love for Christ and the church also ought to be grounded, immovable, unchanging, unshifting, so that it's constant, growing and grounded is what our love for Christ and the church ought to be like. Now, another implication of what Paul is telling us here is that if we are not rooted and grounded in love, then we will not be in a position to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Why not? Because you won't have the strength for it. If you're not rooted and grounded in love, then you will not have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. What's that tell us? Well, it tells us what I intimated at the introduction to the sermon. In order for us to be rooted and grounded, in order for us to have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ like we need to, in order to live faithful lives, then we have to comprehend the love of Christ together as a body, as a family, as a church, not in isolation from one another, never in isolation from one another. It has to happen here among the communion of saints That is how we become rooted and grounded. That is how we are strengthened so that we can comprehend the love of Christ by being here and by loving all those people that are sitting next to you right now. And that raises a question for us, an important question. Are you rooted and grounded in love? As you consider your love for Christ, as you consider your love For your brothers and sisters in Christ, can you honestly say that that love is growing and immovable? Is it? Or has your love grown stagnant and begun to wither? And that can happen, saints. It can happen to any one of us so that our our love, rather than being rooted and grounded, begins, begins to stagnate. It becomes weak. It begins to wither. We begin to lose heart. We become discouraged in regard to the church. Many of you have been in this very congregation for over a decade. And over such time, zeal can begin to fade. Love can, for various reasons, begin to cool. Bitterness can take root because you're sinners. And you sin against each other. And you rub one another the wrong way. And there are misunderstandings that arise. And over the years, as those things happen, it can begin to chafe you. And such chafing can really begin to work its way at the foundation of the church. It can really begin to wear down your love for the church. And not only for this congregation, maybe you're doing fine with this congregation, but as you look out at the broader body of Christ, and you realize all the problems that are afflicting her right now, as you see all the silliness and error that is running rampant through the greater body of Christ, you may begin to lose heart for that regard to where you become very dismissive toward the broader body of Christ. And that can happen to a congregation where a congregation becomes sort of isolationist, 
cutting herself off from the broader body because the broader body is ew, gross because of all the problems she has. But does that honor Christ? Is that what he calls us to? He never calls us to isolation. He calls us to love his bride because he loves her and his love for her does not end and it does not give up. And as his people, as his, as his brothers and sisters through faith, we are to love his bride as he does. Not growing bitter, not losing zeal, not allowing our love to grow cool, but remaining zealous in our love for the church. And it, when, our, when, when we fail to be rooted and grounded in love, what begins to happen is that we easily become more concerned with ourselves and the details of our own lives than with the good of others. Now listen, I have a large family, and I understand that the details of life require a lot of attention and time. I understand that. But also realize that in my wicked, self-deceptive heart, it's very easy for me to use my own busyness as a convenient excuse to simply ignore the church and to ignore my brothers and sisters because I just don't have the time, you see. It's always easy. We're all busy. We all are pressed for time. And so we, and I understand that, and we ought to be understanding with one another when it comes to those concerns. At the same time, we have to guard our hearts and ensure that that has not become sin, that that does not become an excuse for refusing to show love to the church. We have to be honest with ourselves and say, am I embittered? Am I actually trying to avoid the church? Am I more interested in simply doing what I want rather than being given to the church and seeking her good as well? We have to be honest with ourselves about our motives to ensure we're not making excuses to cover our sin. Because if we are to be truly rooted and grounded, as Paul tells us here, then we must be rooted and grounded in our love for one another. We have to love one another in order to comprehend the love of Christ. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Paul's point here. What an amazing verse. You know, when Paul runs on like this, what what we're recognizing here is the the weakness of human language. Paul is just running out of words. He's trying to convey to us, I want you to understand how great the love of Christ is, but I don't know how to say it. Because he can't. Because our language cannot ultimately capture the vastness of the love of Christ. So Paul just says, it's big, it's really big, it's so big you can't even comprehend it. That's how big the love of Christ is for his people. I want you to see it, saints. Listen to what he says. So you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, the the full dimensions of the love of Christ. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So of course, when you consider how huge and expansive the love of Christ is, of course it requires strength to comprehend it. It's big. You can't comprehend it on your own. You don't have the strength. It's only when you're gathered together as the body of Christ that you can begin to comprehend the vastness of our Lord's love for us. Paul's point here is that the dimensions of Christ's love cannot be measured. The love of Christ is immeasurable, unceasing, and deeper than the sea, and higher than the heavens. That's incredible. What a wonderful encouragement. This is our hope, saints. This is the foundation 
of all of our hopes is a recognition that we cannot exhaust our Lord's love for us, His grace toward us. It cannot be exhausted. That when we think we have exhausted His love, we've only begun to scratch the surface in reality. And that we were, if we were to dive into His love, if His love were an ocean, we would never reach bottom. That might sound silly, but it's the truth. That is the vastness of the love of Christ. Even F.F. Bruce, who I'm about to quote to you, who was F.F. Bruce? One of the greatest New Testament scholars of the 20th century, maybe the greatest New Testament scholar of the 20th century, also a believer, thanks be to God. Even all that he could do with all of his education is wax poetical about the vastness of Christ's love. He couldn't put it in any technical terms because there are no technical terms to capture the vastness of Christ's love. Listen to what F.F. Bruce, Dr. Bruce, wrote in his commentary on this passage. Stronger his love than death or hell, its riches are unsearchable. The firstborn sons of light desire in vain its depths to see. They cannot reach the mystery, the length and breadth and height. And that's what Dr. Bruce had to say about it. Just like Paul at the end. I can't put it in academic language, so I'll be poetic. Because in this case, poetry does a better job of conveying the truth than sheer hermeneutical language. The greatest comfort for you, saints, as I've said, is that Christ's love for his people is inexhaustible, unending, infinite. And this we see clearly demonstrated for us in his suffering on the cross. That secures it, that proves it to us, that his love for us is inexhaustible and immeasurable. His love for you will never stop, and there is no limit to it. We cannot surpass it. You know, this, if you'll forgive me for using this example, but I'm going to use it anyway. I even have a note that perhaps I'll use this example, so I'm going to go for it. I hope it doesn't seem too quaint to you, but there's a story I read to my kids called To the Moon and Back. And it's a story of a father and a son. They're actually rabbits in this story. But it's a father and a son. And they're having a competition about who loves the other more. And so the son says, Dad, I love you all the way over to that tree and back. I love you all the way to that tree. And the dad says, well, I love you all the way to the tree and back. And they just keep going and going and going. And finally, the son says, Dad, I love you all the way to the moon. And then he goes to sleep. And then dad looks at him, looks at his sleeping son and says, Son... I love you all the way to the moon and back. And as parents, those of us who are sitting here, we get that. We understand that kind of love. We'll always outlove our children. Understand that is Christ's love for us. We can say, Lord, I love you all the way to the moon. And his response will always be, I love you all the way to the moon and back. That is how great his love is for us. And we see that on this table. There it is signified for us. You see it, saints, in those elements? There it is. His broken body and his shed blood, which was broken and shed out of nothing but love for his father and for his people. Notice the paradox of verse 19. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge how can you know something that surpasses knowledge? If it surpasses knowledge, doesn't that mean that it's incomprehensible? Well, yes, 
So what is Paul saying here? Well, this is what he's saying. He is telling us that the love of Christ cannot be known by sheer intellect alone. You may understand the teaching, you may understand the words I'm saying here, but simply understanding the words I'm saying does not mean you actually comprehend the love of Christ. To truly know and comprehend the love of Christ, you must experience His love. It must be experienced to be known. We must participate in His love. That's how you know and comprehend the love of Christ. Not merely by understanding it on an intellectual level, but by participating in His love. And saints, where do we do that? Where do we participate in the love of Christ? Do we do it out in the world? No, we participate in the love of Christ here. Among these people, the body of Christ, among the fellowship of the saints, As we love Christ and as we love one another, we experience and participate the immeasurable participate in the immeasurable love of God. That's when we attain to the fullness of God and maturity in Christ, as Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 13, is here with his people. So here's that's an amazing privilege for us, saints, and it's very important for us to understand this. The love of God is present among us not only as an idea, not only as a doctrine that we teach and insist upon. The love of God is present among us as a tangible, experiential reality. That's the truth of it. It's not just an idea on paper. It is a tangible reality that we feel, see, touch, and hear. So that in that incomprehensible love of God is made visible in the church specifically and especially through our love for each other so when the world looks at us saints when the world looks at our worship when the world looks at our treatment of one another they really should be amazed by what they see among Christ's people they should be gobsmacked by what they behold in the body of Christ. They should see something that they don't see anywhere else. They should see something that they cannot quite comprehend or explain, the love that surpasses knowledge. It reminds me of the Romans and their their response to the early church while the church was being persecuted by the Romans. The Romans would say, Behold how the Christians love one another. The Romans couldn't make sense of that. And that's exactly how the people of Howell should respond to this congregation as they observe you. Behold those Christians and how they love one another. Is that true of your congregation? Do they see that in you here within this congregation, saints? We must make every effort to ensure that they do. How will the world know that we are our Lord's disciples? By our love for one another. First and foremost, by our love for one another. Because they see in our Lord's disciples a love they cannot see anywhere else. And they see it here. How do we do it? How is that even possible? We're sinners, Nate. We're selfish. We forget. I know, so do I. So how do we do it? 
Paul gives us the answer. Look at his closing doxology in verses 20 and 21. I'll read it to you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How do we do it? By asking God, who is able to do abundantly more than we ask or dream. That's how we do it. That's how you do it. God is able to make his love manifest in us by the power at work in us. And he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Think of what he has already done for you and for this congregation through Christ. He's redeemed you from your sins. He saved you from the grave. He saved you from the wrath of God. That was hard. Everything else by comparison is rather easy. Can he make this congregation an example of divine love to Howell? He certainly can. If you will ask him and believe him and obey him, yes, he certainly will. So the challenge for you is how to love one another when you live so far apart. That's the challenge that our congregation faces. How do you do that? How do you make it work? And everyone has this dream of having a community church where the church is in the center of town and everyone lives around it. Lord willing, we'll get back to that one day. But that's not our situation. So for the time being, we've got to make it work. How do we do that? Make as much time as you can to be together with the saints without harming your other God-given responsibilities. Show love and concern for your brothers and sisters here. And when, you're, when you get together on Sunday morning, this is something we're striving to do down at Trinity. When you come together on Sunday morning, you've already made the trip. Make the absolute most of the time you have together. Have lunch together regularly. Do things together. Spend time together. Pray together. Understand what's going on in one another's lives. Help bear one another's burdens. It's the simple things, the little things, really that teach us how to love one another as Christ loves us. And by showing that concern, do those things, saints. And I believe, based on what God has said here, that although you already are an example of his love to Howell, you'll become an even greater example of his love. So the people who are walking by here every Sunday morning will stop and ask, like they did yesterday, what's going on here? What is this that I can't quite comprehend? I'm attracted to that so that God may be glorified. And I'll close with this, saints. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incomprehensible love that we cannot even begin to describe or put into words, Lord, that we are powerless to explain in fullness. We thank you, Father, that you lavish your grace upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Please make us examples of your love to the world around us, not only for the saints here in Howell, but also for the saints down in Larwell and for all of your churches throughout this nation, Lord. Make us examples of your divine love that surpasses understanding, so those who are perishing in their sins may be convicted and drawn to your Son by your Spirit in saving faith. 
We ask this of you, Father, believing that you are more than able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. And Father, we also ask you to teach us how we ought to pray as our Lord taught his disciples when he was ministering. says that we have come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood proclaims mankind is wicked and murderous. Jesus' blood proclaims mankind is redeemed and made righteous. Abel's blood declares death. Jesus' blood declares life. Both men fell by the hands of wicked and hateful mankind. Abel's blood cries out as a witness against us. But Jesus' blood cries out as a witness for us. It announces the end of the reign of sin and the establishment of everlasting righteousness. It continually speaks those precious words first uttered by our Savior on the cross. It is finished. This is the sweet language of the blood of Christ. And here at the Lord's table we are reminded that we have come to that blood. We should always be coming to it and listening to what it speaks. It is our salvation. It is our everlasting hope. So come, partake of Jesus and of the blood of the new covenant that speaks far better things than that of Abel. We invite to the Lord's table all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christ's body broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.